We need to preserve just the importance of what trains meant to this country and commerce and all that went on. And so you wander around this place. This, this big one on the left is just massive. And you, and you walk up to it and you touch these trains and you see them and you kind of, kind of envision how life was. And as I got to think about all this restoration that's gone into this, it's really all for show. I mean, you fire these things up. Most of them don't really run. They're not restored to that level. But it's quite impressive to kind of walk around and, and see all these different things. And it really got me thinking about the whole idea of restoration that goes on in the story of Nehemiah that we're going to look at today. Uh, incidentally, my second grader walks up to one of the backlit displays. These are about this big. They're sitting here. And she walks up. She looks at it. She swipes the picture and swipes it again. Of course, there's nothing to swipe. And she kind of shrugs and walks away, totally unimpressed. Like, what kind of an iPad is this? This thing is lame. It just sits there and, and stares at me. So just kind of a sign of the times, I guess. But here's what Nehemiah shows us and what, what even seeing those trains kind of reminded me of, is that sometimes the most important building is rebuilding. And that's what we see in, in the story of Nehemiah. If you were to go in your Bible to the very beginning to Genesis, what you would see is a builder God. A God who creates and he designs and he, he puts all of this in place. And after the seven days, uh, what he does is he sits back and he looks at it and he declares, it is what? Good. That's our heavenly father, the sovereign, the one who created the universe, putting his stamp of approval on creation. He's blessing it. And he says, it is good. So I know some of you have had the kind of weak or month that has you asking this question here. So what happened? I mean, if all of this was so good, what happened? Why is the world so broken? I don't know when the last time you had some devastating news flash interrupt your day or your life, um, but probably most of us don't have to go back that far where we're sent reeling, we're hurting, we're scared, we're frustrated, uh, we're shocked, we're wondering what's going on. When I was thinking about this whole idea of brokenness in a fallen world and all of that, I thought about the fact that this is my first Father's Day not celebrating with my dad. Um, and so that's, that's where my world's gone this, this last year. And I also got to thinking about this. My dad is celebrating his best Father's Day ever. He's in the presence of Jesus. We're driving home yesterday, and I happen to be listening to 1 Corinthians 15, where it says that our bodies are put into the ground perishable, but they're raised imperishable. Anyone who's having a failing body, say amen to that. That is great news. My dad's having a great Father's Day. Those of us who are left, though, we struggle with that. We wrestle with that because there's brokenness, there's fallenness that's gone on in this world. Here's the great news is that God is in the business. God is in the work right now of restoring things. Sin enters the world and destroys goodness, and God's in the process of restoring that. Here's my question to you this morning. What if God were to invite you personally to lead the charge in some restoration project, saying, this is broken, I want you to lead the charge in making that right, in rebuilding that, in restoring that. We've been in this series we're calling Step of Yes, and really it's about just that. It's about these invitations that we see God doing with people and inviting them to partner with him in doing his restoration work uh, here on planet Earth. And what we see is people who are, who are taking sometimes very tiny steps in that direction, just saying, God, I, I trust you a little bit. I've got the faith of a mustard seed. I've got just this, this little childlike faith that I'm going to reach out to you and kind of, kind of go that way. And we see how the stories 
get to unfold. I want you to turn in your Bible to Nehemiah, and that's go to the Psalms and hang a left by a few books. That's where Nehemiah is. I know sometimes these Old Testament books um, can can be uh, a challenge for you to find. We're in Nehemiah chapter 1, and we're going to start there this morning. And thanks so much to Abby who drew our picture there. There's our wall being rebuilt. For those of you who know the story, you kind of get what's going on in that. For those of you who don't, um, this is going to entice you to read the book of Nehemiah and find out what is happening in that picture. Sometimes the way that God invites us is just to allow us to take notice of something. What we see with Nehemiah is he took notice of something and then he took action. That's it. He took notice of it, and then he took action. That's, that's how he got involved in the process of being used by God. Look at chapter 1, verse 3, and it says this. There's a remnant of people, God's people, who are scattered all over the place, and some who are still back in Jerusalem, and news comes back to reach Nehemiah, who right now is serving in a Persian kingdom. It says verse 3, and they said to me, these news bearers, the, re- the remnant there in the province who has survived the exiles in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. First off, it's noteworthy that Nehemiah took notice of it, that he just noticed. He took the news and paid attention to it. Sometimes these these stirrings that come to us, these news flashes that come to us, the fact that it moved him to cry and to fast for days, we can see those as invitations from God. Where do we think those stirrings come from? We're wired in such a way that God gives those to us, and certainly Nehemiah had that. What we see in his response is we see his heart. We see what's on his inside come bubbling out. Look at verse 5. I want to read for you the rest of chapter 5 is a prayer that he makes. And he says this, And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. Pause for a moment. That's exactly what's happened. They have been unfaithful, and the people have been scattered around. Now pick it up, verse 9. But, this is Nehemiah quoting back to God what he said to them through Moses. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. 
You know, you can really learn a lot about someone when you pray with them. You ever notice that? Here we see Nehemiah, and what we see from Nehemiah's prayer are a few things. I'll call out just a few things I noticed. One is that he has a right and high view of God. Great and awesome God is what he keeps saying. Our success depends on you, God. So he has a high view of God. Next we see that he has a recognition and a confession both of national sin and personal sin. He doesn't just kind of generalize and say, uh, we as a people have done it, but he brings it back to his own self. Even I and my father's house, we've sinned greatly against you, God. It's a humble position. It's a position of repentance, calling out to God in a confessing manner. We also see that he's not stuck in a moment. We love this saying around here at NBC, which says this, come exactly as you are, but don't stay that way. That means don't get yourself cleaned up before you come to church. That's a fool's errand. Come as you are, but don't get stuck there. God wants to transform you. God wants to grow you. And what we see in this is that he's not just, well, here we are. I guess this is just how it's always going to be. What we also see is this. He calls out the promises of God. He knows the character of God. And how do we know, how does he know all this except that he knows his Bible? He knows what the promises of God are because he's read his Bible. He knows what the character of God is because he's read his Bible. I wonder if the Bible informs our prayer times. Do you see him calling out the promises of God? God, you said. I know we've been unfaithful. I know we're scattered. But you said if we'll turn, you'll gather us from all reaches of the, of the earth and bring us back. That's what I'm praying today. Do you see how if we have a made-up God about, God, you said, you promised I'd be comfortable and successful in this world. That's, not, that's a promise God never made. That we'll always be disappointed with God, right? But if we know the promises of God and we say, God, I know you didn't promise comfort, but I know that you want me to be sanctified. I know you want me pursuing your great name. And so be with me in this, God. It changes the way that we pray. Finally, he knew that he needed mercy and that his success was dependent upon God giving it to him. Now, here's what's, here's what's rather noteworthy that he even took notice and cared this deeply. It's noteworthy because he has risen to prominence in a Persian kingdom where no doubt he was highly comfortable. He was in a place of influence. He could have been hanging out and said, wow, bummer for you guys. So sorry to hear that. But I've got a massage later on, and I'm having a steak dinner tonight. That's what he could have been like. Instead, he, he takes his position of power, and he identifies with the Jewish people, and it, and it hits him hard because he cares deeply. Now, here's just kind of a little aside. When news hits us, it's not enough just to notice it. We live in a day and age where um, news hitting us is happening at any time of the day or night, from any kind of manner of, of sources, right? I mean, if, if we're the type of people who love to be in the know, and that type of person, I mean, people have wanted to be in the know for a long, long time. It's just now we have all kinds of tools to keep us in the know. And sometimes people love to be the first to know things. Hey, did you hear? Oh, yeah, I totally got that. And did you catch this? Oh, no, I didn't know that. Yeah, see, I'm in the know. And what happens is we love to get information. And if you're a sports guy, you love to, to know right away what the scores are and who got traded where and this and that. And if you're into politics, then you're into that. If you're into technology, then you got the beat on this. 
And what happens is sometimes we, we get the news, we don't do anything with it. There's kind of a sport made of this nowadays where people can be in the know and be really excellent at that and not really be any, any better off for it other than that they just have the news. Here's what Nehemiah did. Nehemiah got the news, he felt deeply about it, and then he prayed about it, and then he took action to his prayer. That's what we see. And that's because he had great faith in a great God. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. What he did was he took action. He responded. He knew that in this moment, the most important building project he could be about is the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. That's what, that's what he saw as most important. And he acted on what he prayed. He didn't just feel bad for a people group or bad about a situation, then pray about it, and then wipe his hands clean, and then get off to, to watch some TV. He got up off of his knees, and he began to act on what he had been praying about. I want to call out just a couple of things. This is just grabbing from a few different, uh, a few different places from, from Nehemiah. Um, is that uh, he, first of all, partnered with Ezra. Uh, Ezra is a scribe and a priest. And every great cause, every great idea needs both leadership and a team around it to have it succeed. So what we see with Nehemiah is he goes and he partners with this guy, Ezra. Ezra is skilled in spiritual things. He spends his days pleading with God, listening to God, pouring over the scriptures. Nehemiah is world-wise. He's a guy that knows how to get things done. He can move projects forward. And I love that we see Nehemiah pairing with Ezra here. The Hebrew Bible actually has Ezra and Nehemiah as one book. They're in the same, they're, they're contemporaries, and they partner so closely together that it's one book in the Hebrew Bible. Our English Bibles separated out into two. The way that Ezra supported the building work is he supported it by being a like-minded leader. He was teaching the people. He was preparing their hearts. He was leading some of the more spiritual reform, elevating the word of God, those kinds of things, while Nehemiah was, was doing the building project. It's an incredible picture of the body of Christ coming together. Some of you in this room are logistics people. Some of you are worldwide. You know how to get things done in this culture. You can move a project forward. Some of you are phenomenal business minds, and you know the right way and the best way to talk and to move in those circles. It's so powerful when someone in that realm who says, we need to get this done, pairs with a, a, a spiritual leader and says, let's, let's do this in a way that honors God. I've had a few people uh, in our church come and say, look, I'm about to expand this business. I'm about, I'm about to move into this direction. And, and I want to make sure that my God-honoring business and the way that we're doing business here is still God-honoring if it goes to here. Can you just begin to walk with me in that? Can you pray with me in that? Can, can we partner together on that? They're not coming to me for business or stock advice. That's not what you come to me for. But what they're saying is they're saying, we want to partner to, to, together on this. And it's so great when, when pastors and church leaders say, man, we need a project to happen. We have a brand new uh, playground set up. It's not brand new more. It's a couple of years old. But we had a few people in our church. I just said, you guys are doers. You guys can crank this thing out. Can you guys get this done? And then we did that and dedicated it and said, God, would you take our property and all the things that we have and, and use it as a spiritual blessing in the lives of people? Let it be so much more than wood and plastic and, and metal. And God's done that. Just an, an, a neat picture of that. What were the results of, of this partnership? A wall was rebuilt, right? If you read the book of Nehemiah, despite opposition and other things that we'll look at, a wall's built. Jerusalem is, is put back in place. Now, a wall in a city in those days represented significance. If you didn't have a wall, you were irrelevant. 
You had no significance as a city. But maybe more imminent than that, more, more pressing, was that you weren't secure. Anyone and everyone who wanted to walk by and take advantage of you could come do that because you're defenseless. You have no wall. There's no possible way you could defend your city. So a wall in those days presented significance and stability or security. And here this, this wall is rebuilt and God allowed those things to go on. What's awesome, though, is he's not just a wood, brick, mortar kind of a guy. He's thinking spiritually. There's giant reform that happens with the people of God so they don't end up in the same mess that they're in right now. So he restores the place of God's word to its proper prominence amongst the people. And he elevates that. And he was instrumental along with Ezra in bringing about the word of God back to its high place. The physical wall acted as a kind of uh, opportunity for blessing and security. The spiritual wall of God's word functioned in the same way. When we place ourselves under God's word, it's that same sort of thing. Now here's moving from an old walled city in Jerusalem, which may be hard to get your head around, to thinking about today. Here's my question for you. We're going we're gonna to wrangle on this a little bit as community groups this week. Who is it that you notice? When you drive around this city, when you, when you think through life, when news is coming at you, who is it that you take notice of? Who's defenseless? Who's the one that feels right now insignificant, irrelevant, and lost their identity? Could it be that God has, has wired you in such a way, stirred you in such a way, that that's moved you to say, man, I've got to get involved in that? I think if I listed off 20 tragedies in the world, 20 different kinds of tragedies, I would have a hunch that each one of you would probably gravitate to just a few of those. You'd say, all those are terrible things. But man, these three really are terrible. Someone should be doing something about those three. I also think that in a room this size, if I were to list 20 different tragedies, that God's wired us all in such different ways that I bet someone in this room would feel passionate about at least all of those that all 20 would be covered just by the different wirings that we have in this. That's the body of Christ taking notice of the needs in the world. So the question for you is, what do you see? All right, not only did he do these things, but he also uh, persevered in opposition and provided for opposition. Look at chapter 4. Flip over to chapter 4 for a moment. And really the entire chapter 4 in the book of Nehemiah is that he's being opposed by other people. This is external opposition. These are people around him jeering at them. You think you're going to rebuild that wall in a day? That's a massive project. That'll never happen. There's ridicule. There's jeering. And that all turns into actual threats. Nehemiah doesn't seem that, that daunted, and so it starts turning into physical threats against them. What I love about the leadership of Nehemiah is he's got a game plan for this. He says this, all right, here's my workforce. You over here, you get to play with swords. You're going to be our bouncers, our guards. You're going to look out day and night for people attacking us. That's going to make you people who work a lot more happy. Because when you're working with your, you know, facing a wall, you don't have to keep looking over your shoulder. They've got your back. Are we all squared on this? And everyone says, yeah, we're all one. Let's get going on this. He looks at the opposition. He, doesn't, he isn't daunted by it and says, well, I guess we tried. 
but I guess we're being attacked and ridiculed so we can't do it. He makes provision for it. And he starts to create a little game plan as to how to move forward and make sure that the, that the project continues. Here's a couple of lessons for this. I was a youth pastor, college pastor for a lot of years, and especially guys, they want adventure. They want to fight. They want to do something that means something. And I so identify with that. Here's my statement to you. If you, if you want to be significant, if you want to do something that matters, and if you want to fight, if you want to test yourself in a fight, here's what you do. You don't go looking for it. Here, if, if, if you simply begin to engage in good, God-honoring things in an evil and dark world, the fight will come to you. Nehemiah went after rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem, and what happened? A fight came to him. Some of you have pursued godly endeavors in this world, and the fight came to you. You didn't have to go picking a fight or looking for a fight. It will come to you. You want to play with swords? Go do good things. You may have to defend yourself at some point. Here's the second lesson. Just the fact that it's noted that opposition is there is instructive for us. When you go engage in the good works that God has for you, you will be opposed. This is an evil and dark generation. You will be opposed to that. So don't be surprised by it. Now, is, is our big fight, is our main fight physical? Of course not. It's spiritual. So at every turn, as God is raising up an army of people to be about his restoration works, that will be opposed on every front, spiritually. And sometimes that takes place in the form of threats. All right, chapter 5 is talking about internal opposition. There's a smear campaign that goes on. Any of you who've ever led in any capacity understand this. When you become a leader, there is this target that goes right here on your front as you march forward. And guess what? There's a matching one on the back. It's a two for one. Every leader knows this. Moses was attacked by his own siblings. Who gave you the right? Does God only speak to you? Right? Remember that? Here's Nehemiah getting opposed from external forces, serious opposition, not just name-calling, but threats. He makes provision for it. Now there's internal fighting and opposition going on. There's a smear campaign against his own thing. You know what he does when a smear campaign comes up? He doesn't gather his PR team. He doesn't look for damage control. He doesn't try to put out posters. Instead, he goes to his God. He basically goes to his God in prayer. And in in chapter 6, look at verse 9 of chapter 6. It says, for they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. When you are attacked, not if, when you are attacked, run to the Lord to defend you. Run to the Lord to defend you. When you're on a mission, there are times when you're on a mission where you need clarity. God, are you still in this? Is this still the right direction to go? And that's when you pause and you stop and say, God, I need a word from you. I need to know that you're still with me in this. And when he gives you confirmation of that, stop being wishy-washy. Move forward and say, God will strengthen me. God still is with me in this. And I love that he gets his, his clarifying. He took the step of yes, but God doesn't give us 28 steps out ahead usually, does he? He usually gives me one in front. And sometimes not even that. I've got to just take it by faith. So when you're stuck, you say, God, are you still in this? When he says yes, you move forward with boldness the way Nehemiah did. I want you to see that throughout this entire story, if you read all 13 chapters, what you get from Nehemiah is this picture 
of a man who's testifying to his great God in all these different sectors of the public square. Some guys come to me and sometimes, men and women, they say, oh, it's easy for you. Uh, it's your job to talk about God. But I'm on the job, and I don't get to talk about God like that. How do you, how do you bring God into the workplace? I've got some teachers in this room. How do you talk about God and not lose your job? How do you talk about God in the cubicle or on the job site or in the lunchroom without, you know, without beating people with a 20-pound Bible, without having people scatter the second that you show up because you're the God talk guy and you're just going to you know, bring out a three-point sermon on them? I want to show you an example from Nehemiah where what we see is a man who's deeply in love with his hero, who's God, and he keeps pointing it back to God in all these different situations. Look at chapter 2, verse 18. Here is Nehemiah, who's calling out the greatness of God while trying, trying to garner support. He's talking to the Jewish people and exclaiming to them why they should follow him, why they should join him in this. It says, and I told them, here it is, the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words of the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us arise up and build. So they strengthened their hand for the good work. What just happened is he went and asked the king, king, can I go do this work? And, and the king, his boss, blessed it and actually made provisions for it. What did Nehemiah lead with with the people of God? You'll never believe what my boss did. The company's paying for this, that, and the other thing, and we get to do this. No, no, no. He says the good hand of God was upon me. That's what happened. And the words of the king were favorable, but God's over all of that. He gives testimony to his Lord. Look at chapter uh, 2, verse 20. So that's while he's garnering support. Here he is while being opposed. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. This is people sneering at, at, at them. And we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. What does he call out? He calls out who's going to make them prosper. It's God. That's just a little testimony about God. How about verse 8 of chapter 2? Here he is while he's experiencing success. The king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. He constantly keeps recognizing any good work that's going on, any success that I'm having, any good deal that I got. It wasn't because I talked the guy down and I'm so good at making deals. God's in this. God's causing me to prosper. I'm just going to keep reflecting back what's going on here. He had an understanding of what was happening. Oh, that you and I would know, be utterly convinced, and then proclaim that God, our hero, is at work in our lives. When good things happen, when we employ our gifts and someone says, wow, you're so gifted at that. When you do that, it builds me up so much. You can just humbly and consistently say, you know what, I have nothing that I didn't receive from God. I'm so glad God used me to be a blessing to you. Isn't that powerful? And in the workplace, when someone says, you know what, job well done. It's just awesome the way you did that. You're, you really moved that forward. You know what, the good hand of my God is upon me. That's what it is. There's a great interview after the Warriors won, I think about game two of the playoff series against the Spurs, and the interviewer's there trying to talk to Mark Jackson, the coach. And he says, hey, tell us about basically this super young team that beat a really uh, deep veteran Spurs team on, on that night. Tell us all about your strategy and your players and this and that. Mark Jackson kept saying this, it's all God. And the, and the interviewer said, yeah, I know that, but 
Tell us about your, your rookies, the way that they shot lights out from the three-point line. Hey, it's all God. All praise and glory to God, my Savior. Yeah, yeah, we got that. She asked three times. He wouldn't budge. I paused the TV. I called my family down. I said, guys, come here. This is a guy who just won't budge on it. It's not about my rookies. It's not about my incredible coaching skill. You want to talk about your little piddly stuff? You've, you're missing it. I'm answering you. It's all God. I love that. It wasn't arrogant. It wasn't flippant, you know, like I'm winning an award and I quit praise to God. It was sincere. And I just thought, man, that's the public square. That's Nehemiah. It's God. You want to know why we're succeeding? It's all God. How do we apply this? I put in your uh, sermon notes the definitions to the word restore. And I want you to circle two of them. I want you to circle number... uh, Number three and number five. <clears throat> these, these two in particular um, just so remind me of, of the restoration work that we see Jesus doing as we read the Gospels. It's so the restoration work that we see in the book of Nehemiah. I think restoration is so inviting. The word restore uh, can stir up so much hope precisely because brokenness is so universal. Think about this for a second. Think about your bodies. Um, so it's Father's Day. So, you know, uh, guys, we're, we're thinking about things here. And uh, I, was, I was at the lake wrestling around and playing around, and I woke up really sore. And I was mad at being sore. I don't like being sore from playing, you know, King of the Hill and see doing, doing some different stuff on the lake. I don't like that. I like waking up not being sore. I used to not be sore. Now I'm sore. I mentioned this in front of my older brother-in-law. He said, welcome to, to the other side of 40, buddy. You know, and I wanted to punch him, but he's a lot bigger than me, and I'd be more sore. So I just held, held back. But sore muscles are, are just a sign of that, disease, aging, fatigue that goes on. Some of us dads have hair that's turning colors. Some dads have hair that's turning loose, right? This is all just a sign that our bodies are in need of restoration. They're, they're, they're falling apart. There's brokenness. How about our minds? As we get older, we get more forgetful. We get more scatterbrained with things. We don't remember details as well. But beyond that, we also have evil thoughts, just sinful thoughts. We have anxiety. Some struggle with depression. We have these these minds that are broken, and we long for restoration. We long for that to be rebuilt in some way. How about just our physical environment? Romans 8 talks about the fact that all creation is longing for this, this final restoration that's coming. Sometimes we're the perpetrators of breaking down the environment. Sometimes the environment's the perpetrator of breaking down us, like in Oklahoma, like Katrina, like Superstorm Sandy, on and on. We see these different things that go on. And think about our stories for a second, our movies, our books, our songs. Do they not all seem to share kind of this, this common theme that says that there's brokenness in some way, and we're trying to put you know, Humpty Dumpty back together again. We're, we're trying to find that place back home. We're trying to get back to a place where we can be restored in right relationship. Now, as I read the Old Testament, I see that it reflects the goodness of God and his restoration work brilliantly. It shows off a great God. But on this side of Jesus, because of Jesus, we have it even better. We have an even clearer picture about what God 
is up to. Think about this. What God did through Nehemiah and Ezra on a national level, that is, restore the capital city, God's city of Jerusalem, to, to, to prominence, to significance, to security. What God used Nehemiah and Ezra to do on a national level, Jesus does for each one of us on a personal level. You are significant. You are now secure and safe. You're now rebuilt. Think about the fact that Nehemiah's uh, work of rebuilding and restoring um, what was ruined, he, he, he took it out of something that was ruined, something that was always there. Uh, Jesus makes us uh, something new, brand new, completely. He doesn't just take the old and kind of reform it. He makes us brand new. The work that Nehemiah engaged in of rebuilding a wall was going to deteriorate again, right? Someone else was going to have to come and rebuild it. The work Jesus does in us is everlasting. It will never be torn down. So we have better restoration nowadays than even when we look back on the great things God did through Nehemiah. When I read about Nehemiah and restoring, thinking about restoring the hope of people by rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, I look at that and I say, man, I want to be involved in that kind of thing. I want to be involved in God's restoration kind of work. Turning your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to close out by, by lingering here. I'm going to put it up on the screens as well. But if you want to be involved in that, first things first, and that is this, that it's God that does the restoring. We just join in. We're not the hero. We don't come in and fix anyone. How many of you do a great job of fixing yourself? No one, right? So don't go around trying to fix everyone else. God does the restoring. We're his agents. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this. This means that anyone... By the way, just listen for the, for the restoration language in, in these passages. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. Why did he have to bring us back? Because sin ripped apart our relationship with a holy God. So through Christ, we're brought back. We're restored home. Now, out of this new self, we get to join with God in his work. Look at verse 18. And God has given us this task of reconciling people back to himself. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them, and he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. Verse 20. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. I sometimes read passages so blasé because I've read them before and I'm familiar with them. Did you hear what I just said? Christ is making his appeal through you. When you plead with people, come back to God. He's longing to restore you. He's longing to forgive you. That's Christ making his appeal through you. That's what it means to be his ambassador. When we're reborn, if you are a reborn child of God, just like you had a physical birth, the Bible says you have a spiritual birth. There's a starting point to that. And at that starting point, here's some powerful news. God gifted each one of you in that moment. 
That means that each one of you in this room who's been reborn by the power of Christ is gifted and skilled at rebuilding and restoring in some way. Some of you are phenomenal with your hands. You can just build stuff. I love to see builders just at work around the church in Mexico, uh, in people's homes. They just take their hands and they just, they just do stuff with it. Some of you have mouths and minds that can restore relationships and restore hurts and those kinds of things. God's gifted people along those lines. I want to get this really practical so that I'm hoping to give you some hooks on how to grab onto this. How do I move forward with being a part of God's, uh, of, of God's restoration work? Here's a couple things. One is to start at home. I want to talk to the dads for a moment. I love you dads that you showed up on Father's Day. You probably had a choice of what to do today. I mean, if there's any day that dad gets to have a say, it ought to be today, right? Father's Day. I love that you're here in church. I mean, I'm preaching to the choir here. That's a, that's a good thing. But now that you're here, rebuild at home. And what I mean by this is don't go home and do a bunch of home repair projects on the house. What if you really began to say, God, this has to come from you. The only way this gets rebuilt is if you're the hero here, is if you're the one doing the rebuilding. My marriage needs rebuilding. My relationship with my kids needs rebuilding. Our walk with you. We have sinned. Me and my household have sinned. We're sorry, Lord. We will now walk in your statutes. We'll now walk in your commandments. Would you gather us as a family from all over the world? Would you turn the hearts of my kids back toward me? Would you help me to be your man in our home? Man, start at home. That's where it begins. Take notice. What if we took notice of lacking security or lacking significance in our family members and did something about it? Not just take notice, but took action on it and led the way in it. Another way to be involved in this is to restore the family list. Listen to Psalm 68.6. God sets the lonely in families. He leads forth the prisoners with singing. We're commanded to welcome in the widow and the orphan. We're not commanded to restore them. We're not commanded to change them, fix them, get them on the right path. Those of you who've engaged in this on any level understand that some orphans and widows come in and embrace you with open arms and change your life and you've got a friend for life. Others of of them walk in take your free food for a little bit, and bolt as quickly as they can. Not our job to restore them, fix them. We're to welcome them in. What if we lifted our eyes above just technical orphans? There's a lot of functional orphans in our city. They still have their parents. They're alive. They're not orphaned. They haven't been left anywhere. But for whatever reason, them and their family are estranged. Whose fault is it? Who cares? God knows that. Probably both of theirs. That's, that's the, the, the real answer, right? What if we just went after those orphans in our city, some of whom are wearing power ties and suits and driving Mercedes Benz, many of whom don't look like that? What if we went after the widow? And what if we just began to open up and say, man, I want to be part of God's restoring power in this. I want to I take seriously the command to welcome them in. Here's one more. Repair and reform society. What evil must be righted? Who will speak up for those who can't? Who will act when everyone else just whines? Let me show you a quote. A single death is a tragedy. A million deaths are a statistic. 
That's from Joseph Stalin, the guy who probably had at least a million deaths on his hands. I bring up this quote to point you to an ill in our society, a brokenness that needs repairing. Maybe God in this room would raise someone up to be a voice, to do something significant, to answer their own prayer by being used of God in this way. In 1973, the Supreme Court ruled that a whole class of living people, namely unborn children, did not fall within the 14th Amendment clause of being a person. And so with basically a few strokes of a majority opinion written out, made it legal to now go and end their life. Since 1973, when that decision was made, here's the number in the U.S. alone that have been killed. Does this move you? Think about what you would do to save the life of a struggling child out here on Branham. What would you do? We talked about this a few weeks ago. It would be a shorter list to think of what you wouldn't do. You, you would do just about everything to get that child to safety. There's restoration around every corner of our city. Take notice, pray, and then take action. Start being the answer to your own prayer. Nehemiah is a thorough biography of a guy who was blessed to be a blessing to other people. Remember Abraham from a couple of weeks ago? Abraham was blessed so that he could be a blessing to others. I love that Nehemiah had the courage to ask the question, God, why have you risen me to a place of prominence where I have an ear with the king? Why have you risen me? Why have you gifted me with leadership, administrative abilities, a sense of, of spiritual reformation? All these things. Why have you done that? Is that so I can be more and more comfortable? Is that so I could help advance the Persian kingdom? Or is it for such a time as this? The walls of the city are down and they need to be rebuilt. You have the courage to ask that question and then act on it. He prayed and then he got to work. I want to invite the band up right now. We're going to, we're going to close our morning off with some singing and some celebrating. A lyric that we're about to sing is this. He restores your wasted years. God restores your wasted years. I know what some of you in this room are thinking. It's too late for me. I'm no Nehemiah. My credibility's shot. I'm broke. I don't have a job. I have a job, but hate my job. I'm a bit of a jerk. I've got rough edges. I'm ill. Whatever it is. He returns your wasted years. That's right out of the book of Joel where it says this, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. You know it's never too late for a marriage? It's never too late to be an agent of restoration in God's hands. And catch this, hear me friends, it's never too late to be reborn. 
become exactly as you are. But Jesus says, don't stay that way. Don't stay in your sin. Don't stay in your pig slop. Come to me. I beg you. I'm pleading you with the words of Christ. Come to repentance. Come to Christ. Receive salvation. Get marching on in this. And beloved daughter, beloved son, forget what lies behind and start walking and start living in the high calling that God has placed on your life. He hasn't gifted you for no reason, brothers and sisters. He's gifted you for a purpose. After we sing that line, we're going to celebrate communion. Jesus leaves for us these two symbols that we're instructed as a church to come and gather and celebrate. The broken body, the little wafer we're about to take, has no yeast in it. That's represented the fact that Christ had no sin in his body. And his sin was broken so that we could be made whole, so we could be restored. His blood was willingly poured out on our behalf. That's life-giving blood poured out so we could have eternal life. That's what we're celebrating. We're going to eat. We're going to partake of restoration this morning. So as we sing, as we celebrate around the Lord's table, I would just invite you, uh, if, if you want to come forward and you want to pray at the altar, you come, we'll just make this whole thing a kneeler up here. Maybe you have a burden right now and you say, God, I've prayed for years. I've wept for years. It's time for me to act. I'm ready to act and move on behalf of these people. Isn't it different to walk around? We have a high schooler right now in the Far East walking amongst people that she had been praying about ministering to. It's always different when you're there with them, looking into their faces. They're no longer 50 million. They're one person. And it changes the game. Maybe you need to receive Jesus Christ for the very first time. You're going to lay down your sin and take on his holiness. You come do that. You come kneel right here and pray for that. As we sing, as we celebrate, um, I would just invite you to participate with us.